Hey everybody, this is Warren Sharp, NFL analyst over at Sharp Football Analysis. I want to welcome you to the Ringer Gambling Show. Join me on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays each week during the NFL season with guests Chris Vernon, Ben Solak, and Joe House to guide you through the NFL betting landscape. We'll be talking spreads, game totals, parlays, player props, futures, and much, much more. Be sure to follow the Ringer Gambling Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer's senior editor, Ben Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Hello. I'm getting better at doing the new title. Yeah, Uh, I appreciate that. But I don't need a card to remember it, unlike some people. Uh, so we're gonna have a, we're gonna debut a new segment this week called the Blue Jays Card Beef Ass Meter, uh, because the Blue Jays lost a card and now they have the ass. Uh, so to fill people in who haven't been following the story, the other day, uh, Alejandro Kirk, the Blue Jays catcher, had one of those quarterback wristbands with scouting reports on it uh, to help him call the game that fell out of the wristband on a close play at the play with Kevin Kiermeyer. Uh, it literally fell into Kiermeyer's lap as he was sliding into home plate. Kiermeyer picked it up, took it to the Rays dugout. Uh, anger ensued. Uh, the Blue Jays were very unhappy. Kevin Cash, the Rays manager, later apologized. And uh, Charlie Montoyo, the Blue Jays manager, uh, called it water under the bridge. And then on Wednesday, Ryan Barucki threw at Kevin Kiermaier during his relief appearance uh, uh, and set off a Baruchus, as <laughs> as I like to say. Zach, what what do you make of all this? From the is it legitimate to to find intelligence on the ground? And what does Kiermaier owe the Blue Jays? And what do the Blue Jays owe Kiermaier in this uh, in this case? Is it a fastball in the back? I do not think they owe him a fastball and back. I think this is the kind of absurd baseball fracas that as long as it doesn't lead to actual harm, as long as it doesn't lead to injury or suspension is fine. I think it will lead to suspension in Barucki's case, but there isn't anything nefarious going on here. I think Kiermaier's initial explanation that he thought he had dropped his own outfield positioning card and that's what he thought he saw in the dirt and picked up makes sense, I think, Kiermaier's subsequent explanations where he said, well, I didn't look at it, but also I'm not going to give it back, but it's okay because I didn't look at it, but also the information is important, kind of uh, begged a few questions, I would say. But as far as the actual initial theft goes, I think it's totally innocuous. The question is, should the Rays have given that back right away? What kind of information was contained on that card that is proprietary? Should the cards even exist? I think That's the most important question for me. I think we should just ban the cards altogether, but maybe that's a secondary concern here. Yeah, this is hilarious. (laughs) This is my (laughs) favorite unwritten rules controversy in some time. It was a little funnier, maybe, and a little more lighthearted before it graduated to beanball war, which I honestly didn't think would happen. I thought this was so absurd that even baseball players could not get worked up enough about this to hit themselves, to hit each other with pitches. And they surprised me, as they always do, with how petty and how red-assy they can get about anything. But I was really enjoying this initially, both because it was so strange and because, as Zach mentioned, Kiermaier's explanation or justification or defense was so amazing. It's just this stream of consciousness. I would encourage everyone to just go read the transcript because he restates himself 10 times and he says, yeah, like I said, and he makes it sound like basically he blacked out and had an out-of-body experience. And the next thing he knew, he was holding this card and he just couldn't give it back. (laughs) And I love that. And I think it does raise some interesting questions about the cards. But really, this is just the most 
2021 MLB controversy. If you had told me that this would happen, I would have said it was too on the nose that this could not actually happen in a real game. And it did. And I've seen some people question whether maybe it's actually some sort of misinformation campaign. Maybe the card was planted. It's oh, I like of, that. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I haven't seen that. That's <laughs> it's, good. It's like a Operation Fortitude type thing in preparation for the playoffs, where you feed them the wrong scouting reports, something like that. I don't think that is actually what is happening here, but I think the truth is equally strange as the fiction. This is just nonsensical. I cannot believe that this happened. What I don't get is like Kiermaier doesn't have to justify this like this everybody's got got their heads so twisted up after the the astro sign stealing thing that we forget that the purpose of signs of which there are many uh in baseball is to not leave your tactics lying out in plain sight and if you do then you deserve whatever consequences that, that you suffer and so you know alejandro kirk lost his cheat sheet and it fell into the wrong hands like literally fell into the wrong hands this is a failure of human intelligence and Kiermaier's entirely within his rights to take advantage of that. He'd be foolish not to, I think. I, you know, if, if I were another race player and he had that and could have gotten away with taking it and gave it back, I'd be irritated because I'd want to know what the, what the Blue Jays were, uh, were planning if, if that information was available. It's not okay to just say, like, I'm doing this because I think it's going to help us win and it's not against the rules. Like he doesn't have to to justify it. He should just say, tough, you want to keep your secrets, then don't throw them at me. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of unwritten rules to the extent that there is a purpose as opposed to just people venting is, I think, to discourage your loss of some sort of advantage, right? And so it's an unwritten rule that you're not supposed to steal signs. Even the legal way, you will get chirped at. Or if you're a hitter and you're looking at the catcher and you're peeking, I mean, all of these things get policed, not because they're necessarily inherently wrong, but because by bridling about it and by getting aggressive about it and by acting as if it's some violation of all that is good in the world, you dissuade people from doing it, right? So. So I understand why you would get up in arms about it, not to the extent of actually plunking someone over it, but that's why these things happen, I think, just because you want to discourage people from doing the thing that is going to hurt your team, whether they're thinking of it that way or not. To be clear, I don't think there is really some huge advantage to be derived here just because I think that probably most teams are approaching advanced scouting in a similar way. I mean, every now and then there is some sort of story of an advanced scouting team that really does find something out about someone, you know, like the John Lester can't throw to first kind of breakthrough and it will actually have some big implication. But I think for the most part, Teams are probably approaching scouting the same ways and have similar books on hitters, and they probably know how teams are pitching them. So in this case, just because it's such a tight race and the Jays need every win and you have two potential playoff teams going up against each other, I get why the tensions are ratcheted up a bit higher than they would be if this were, I don't know, Orioles Tigers or something. But I still think it's much ado about not nothing, but probably not any huge advantage being gained or sacrificed either way. Well, I, I think it, it's a misstatement of the issue to call it a, an unwritten rules code. I think the Blue Jays just screwed up and they're mad about it. And there's a difference between that and an unwritten rules violation, even if the the effects of those are often similar. Yeah. I think that's true to some extent. I, I mean, I think there is sort of an, an expectation, I suppose, if you were to transpose this weird, strange situation to some sort of analog in our own lives, you know, you drop a dollar bill or whatever and someone picks it up and you say, I want it back. And it's finders keepers, basically. I mean, that's what this no, that's down to. Society is an adversary. Well, first of all, it is finders keepers, but also <laughs> society isn't zero sum and adversarial, Ben. That's the kind of nihilistic, hyper-capitalist mindset that we're trying to <laughs> move people out of. Whereas baseball is. Baseball is survival of the fittest. And there is no value to collaboration within teams. There's no use in trying to bring people together. Okay. Um, 
Zach, you mentioned wanting to ban the cheat cards. I'm with you, but I would like you to expound on your your reasoning because this is something that's come up in the past few few days uh, along with this controversy. So I think that we want to see baseball players uh, exhibit all of their skills. And I think the intelligence to remember the scouting reports, to implement the scouting reports is part of a catcher's job, especially if we're going to see say robot umps come in and take away framing which is a part that i think we all enjoy of the catcher shop we need something i think to keep catcher special and distinguished from everyone else and i think having them memorize the scouting reports as they have for over 100 years and be able to implement them on the fly with pitchers maybe even quicker than before because the pitch clock could come in like i think that is part of the role of the position that makes it special moreover i think if you look across sports In most other sports, these kinds of on-field or on-court guidances are not allowed. In basketball, you need to memorize the play calls that your coach gives from the sideline. You can't, you know, the point guard doesn't check his wrist to see what play to run. In tennis, you're not allowed to have any coaching on the court, although players try and get away with that by looking at their coach in the stands. They're not allowed to have anything on the court. Football is an exception, and maybe you could say a catcher is more like a quarterback. But even on the other side of baseball, you don't see, like, base runners checking their gloves to see what the sign is they memorize the signs from the third base coach that's a part of the game that we all love that kids love to imitate of you know touching your earlobe and then your nose and then your hat and trying to show what the sign means and i think the fact that we don't allow that on offense but we do on defense both with the catcher and the outfielders positioning themselves i I don't understand why we have that allowed on one side of the game and not the other especially when the game lasted and survived and thrived a very long time without these. So they're clearly not a necessary component of the game. And if we're going to be adding new innovations, a a clock that some people are opposed to, why not at least return this one part of the game to a more traditional time? Yeah, I actually agree. And I've kind of changed my thinking on this because when these cards first started appearing, I thought it was kind of cool because it was a a very visible manifestation of the way that front offices are learning things about baseball. And I think with a lot of innovations like that, they're interesting to me at first because it's something new and novel. And I'm in favor of knowing things about baseball and being smart about stuff. And then it turns out ultimately that maybe those things innovative as they are, are not actually beneficial to baseball or to fans or to spectators. And it certainly doesn't add anything to my enjoyment of the game to see someone pull out a card. And if anything, it's just the opposite. I think I've made this comparison before, but it's basically like you should be off book at this point, right? It's like if you go to a Broadway show and everyone's walking around with the script in their hand, that's okay if it's previews or if it's spring training. But if it's September, you should know by now where you're supposed to stand or what the scatting report is. So I don't like it. And I don't really like the long hand of the front office kind of taking over to that extent. No, I don't want to ban the shift or anything like that. I guess you could say that that's inconsistent. Like if I really want players to just fend for themselves, then they should have to fend for themselves. But I like the idea that there can be some intelligence and some knowledge and some insight there, but you just have to commit it to memory. And that is to some extent a skill. Do you study the scouting reports and can you commit them to memory? And if you can't, too bad. And maybe you can have a coach wave you one way or another, but I don't think it's great when you just have people pull these things out of their pockets and study them. It just kind of reminds me that they are having this stuff fed to them, which like I'm not against, but I also am in this to see the players play, right? And to see their talent manifested on the field more so than how good the scouting report from the front office is. So Maybe it's an arbitrary distinction because I'm just saying, yeah, you can feed them the scouting report, but they have to look at it in the dugout before they go out there. Ultimately, what's the difference maybe? But I think there is some sort of difference. So yeah, <laughs> I, I think the difference is the, dif- it, the difference between coaching and having the front office think for the players. And that's I, maybe that's kind of a fuzzy line, but you think to to players how how many legendary baseball players were renowned for their intelligence for their ability to position themselves and read hitters and and uh read the situation anticipate the game how many 
thousands of words have been spilled about Jackie Robinson's ability to do that, or Willie Mays, or Ted Williams at the plate, uh, or Greg Maddox. And you don't get players distinguishing themselves by their intelligence as much as as they used to. Certainly, there are players who who have that capability even within a stricter framework. But I want to see the game played, you know, executed by the players as much as possible. And you know. There's so much time for coaching. There's so much time downtime uh, during a baseball game. You could take a player aside between innings or between at bats to deliver the scouting report, but it's the player's job to read it and implement it on the field. And I think that's it's almost it feels patronizing to to the players if front offices are taking such a an active role in the like the the foot to foot defensive positioning. If if you know what I mean, in, instead of, you know, saying we're going to play this guy to pull the player should know what that means. And, you know, if that makes the, if that makes the game a little bit less quote unquote efficient, then that's fine. Baseball is not one of those sports where the most efficient form is the most exciting that if there's a little bit of room for human error, there's a little bit more room for the unexpected. And also, the less time you spend reading scouting reports is the less time you have to take between pitches, and maybe we cut down some of that downtime. I know this was, when I was covering the college game, it was a huge, just a huge drag to watch the pitching coach signal in every single pitch from the dugout. It just made everything drag so much. And as as much as possible, I'd like to see the coaching get off the field uh, you know, yeah. so far as we can make that distinction. If the cards were an alternative to having coaching visits and delays mid-inning, I'd be more amenable to them. But I don't know if that's actually made any difference in that respect. Do you remember September 2018 when then Phillies reliever Austin Davis brought out yeah. his cheat sheet on the mound mm-hmm. and Joe West, who was behind home plate, just like reflexively confiscated it, which he had no authority to do. <laughs> and <laughs> I think uh, he may have apologized later because there was just no grounds for it. But I think he was widely mocked because it's so it's country Joe, you know, it's ump show. It's he hates uh, anything new. And now it turns out, no, maybe he was uh, ahead of all of us. We are all Joe West. We're making common cause with Cowboy Joe. I remember Mm -hmm. a few years before that when Howie Kendrick was taking an index card out of his pocket in the outfield and people in the stands were photographing him, like saying it looked like he was texting in the middle of the the defensive (laughs) play. And there were also, what, the laser pointer controversies? There (laughs) yes, all sorts of technological innovations that just a couple years later we can question i think with some uh real reasons and not just uh kind of lashing out but there are actual reasons to want these removed from the field of play we were so naive then (laughs) ben i've got one important question that we haven't touched on with this controversy and then we can move on and i think this really does bear discussion what if it was a family portrait (laughs) that alejandro kirk had (laughs) dropped at home plate That's what I was getting at before, right? Uh, You come up with these hypotheticals about what if it were something else. No, I did not uh, go to the family portrait as some others may have, but there is a a golden rule element to this, right? That's kind of what I was thinking initially is like, hey, if I drop the card, I would want it back, right? And so I can understand. Yeah, that's why you don't drop the card. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't understand how he dropped the card. Why was it not affixed more? That's the thing that made me suspicious about this being some sort of false information campaign, just because I've never seen this actually happen before. And I don't know how it does happen exactly. But It's because they remove sticky stuff. (laughs) Is that why? Yeah. I saw Blue Jays fans saying that Kiermaier intentionally knocked the card out and at that point, I was just like, "We've completely jumped the shark with this." Yeah, I love this Ben's is... theory that it's compl- that it's like a it's a whole operation, and the Blue Jays are trying to. Yeah, exactly. That's a phenomenal theory that I'm going to carry with me. Should the Blue Jays make the playoffs and then face the Rays and then look like they have a leg? There's up. probably what like a roughly 25 percent chance that happens because the Blue Jays are now 50 50 to make the wild card game. If you assume they're about 50 50 to win that wildcard game and the Rays are going to land the number one seed. It's about a 25% chance we get these two teams facing off in the playoffs again. And I will say, as silly as this was, it does make me want that first-round matchup a little bit more than I did before, just because there will be some more heat to it than any other you know, first-round playoff series. Well, yeah. I guess not if the Dodgers play the Giants, but in terms of what it would have had before versus what it will now. 
one of the wild things here is that Kevin Cash and Charlie Montoyo are buds. I mean, Montoyo was Cash's bench coach in Tampa and they met before the next game. And Montoyo said it was Agua under the bridge, right? And Cash apologized. And yet the plunking occurred after that, which I guess goes to show that the players were not on board with being conciliatory about this. But you would have thought that that would set the tone. Like once I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, this is over. But it was not over. Betrayal stings more when it's from a close friend. I guess so. I know this when Zach took Jackie Bradley Jr. in the 2011 (laughs) draft redraft. All right. We're going to go to another segment called Not Mad, Just Disappointed. And so Zach mentioned that the Blue Jays have about a 25% chance of facing uh, the Rays in the first round of the playoffs or the first round proper, I should say, once they make it through the wildcard game, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to talk about a couple teams that, aren't going to be in that conversation or probably aren't going to be in that conversation. And these are teams with huge preseason expectations or huge midseason expectations in some cases that have really let us down. So these are the teams that should feel the most shame, I think is the way that Zach put it when we were talking about this before, uh, before we got started. And you've got one that, that you want to lead off with. Yeah. So the idea came to mind because the Mets and Padres now seem very, very unlikely to make the playoffs, they might both finish below 500 at this point, which is very far from the lofty expectations with which they entered the season. They're disappointed. Their fans are surely disappointed. We're already seeing front office shakeups in uh, in San Diego and New York, but for other reasons in New York. Uh, but when I got to thinking about what teams had to be most disappointed about this season, I realized the first team on the list has to be a team that was so far out of it that like their playoff chances were basically nailed by the time it got warm. And that's the Minnesota Twins. The Twins have, over the last four seasons, they finished second in the division. They finished second in the division. They finished first in the, vi- the division. They finished first in the division. And now they're in last place. They entered the season as basically co-favorites in the AL Central with the White Sox. Uh, I thought they were going to be a really good team building on the last couple of years. They had Kenta Maeda, who was pitching like a Cy Young contender. They had Byron Buxton, who played like an MVP when healthy. They had all the home run hitters from the record-setting team from a couple seasons ago. And then they just face-planted. They were... Uh, 9 and 15 at the end of April. They were 22 and 31 at the end of May. They were 33 and 45 at the end of June. They were just consistently below 500. And I think the Padres have stumbled down the stretch. The Mets have stumbled down the stretch. Some other teams have really disappointed when we thought they would make a run at the playoffs around the All Star break, but the Twins didn't even make it that far. And now I think they have real questions about this group. Can this core still contend going forward with the White Sox on the rise? with Uh, with Detroit on the rise, potentially Kansas City on the rise, and now Minnesota's just in last place. So they're my pick for the, uh, what are we calling this? I'm not mad, just disappointed. Not mad, Come on, Minnesota, we're just disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good pick. And they wouldn't have even come to my mind just because they disappointed us so long ago, (laughs) which they're really flying under the radar here. The Mets and the Padres are taking the brunt of the abuse just because The Twins, they just checked out early and they were my pick to win that division. And that went horribly wrong almost immediately. So I guess that is a reason to feel the most shame. But also, I guess it it kind of paradoxically led to less disappointment just because the Mets and the Padres sustained the preseason hopes for a lot longer than the Twins did. And so that makes me more disappointed in them, I think, just because they strung us along. They had us going. So I, I, I guess I'll take the Padres. And Zach, I'm I'm shocked that you didn't take the Padres because I know you're disappointed. He's still your, working through it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's too soon. <laughs> yeah. Really, like two days ago when I looked and realized they're probably going to finish below 500 given the remaining schedule, that uh, required a long look in the mirror. Yeah, I mean, they looked like a lock well into the season and then they've had a pretty historic collapse we'll see where their record actually ends up but in terms of like first half to second half decline or you could go even further than that because they were very much in the running well after the second half started and then it all just completely fell apart i guess the thing that would excuse them and 
all of these teams and really every team in baseball has some sort of injury excuse this season, but that's really the big one with the Padres. That's not the only thing that has gone wrong for them, but it has gone wrong so spectacularly and in ways that I don't really blame them for. I mean, it seems like it should be malpractice if you are starting Jake Arrieta and Vince Velasquez and Ross Detweiler and you're just like picking up scraps that were jettisoned by other teams. But between the fact that you can't make trades anymore after the July 31st deadline and the fact that just everyone got hurt at once, it's not like you could say they weren't prepared for this sort of thing. They came into the season with great pitching depth. Like who had more pitching depth I'm, than the Padres? Yeah, just the Dodgers. I'm astounded really. that, they, that they ran out of pitching depth. Yeah. That's like one of the most confusing things about this season. And even knowing that out of the arms they had invested in, in the in the system, you know, Mike Clevenger was obviously already on the shelf and you don't count on Chris Paddock to make 30 starts. You don't count on Denelson Lamette to make 30 starts, but even so they had so much depth and it ran out and I'm still kind of at a loss as to, to how that happened. I think one real factor that can be overlooked if you're just focusing on the major league team is one pitcher who hasn't appeared in the majors at all. And, yep. and that's Mackenzie Gore who has been a top 10 prospect globally two years in a row. He was, I think, the top pitching prospect in baseball for a while, and he has regressed mightily. I think the fact that the Padres were going out and signing Arietta and Velazquez when they needed an arm instead of calling up Gore says all you need to know about what's happened to him over the last couple of years. He's just completely lost the strike zone. I think he's overhauled his mechanics and still can't really find it. He's averaging five walks per nine in the minors this year, and he's basically pitched at four different levels, but only 50 total innings. So I think his step backward, along with the the fact that their their farm system naturally lost a lot of players with their trades, and I would defend basically every single one of those trades, but that has led to a depletion of the farm system and made it so that at, at least at the upper levels, they don't really have any reinforcements on the way. I think next year they have more of an optimistic outlook than some of the other teams on this list because very few Padres on this year's roster who are helpful are going to become free agents after this season. The core is basically still there. They'll get Clevenger back. Presumably, like Snell will be healthier next year. Darvish will be healthier next year. But they need the current Major League contributors to contribute because they don't really have that wave of talent coming up because that wave of talent already arrived or was traded off for players who then arrived as well. One thing that I think really encapsulates, and I'm I saw this floating around on the internet the other day. The The Pirates have actually won more games than the Padres since the Adam Frazier trade. So Good grief. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a long look in the mirror right there. And I think, you know, there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. It doesn't help, by the way, that a quarter of their season is against the Giants and the Dodgers. But, I mean, it's, the Padres have been, building up long enough that this is has to be a huge disappointment. This was supposed to be the year that they fought the Dodgers to a standstill and they haven't looked farther away from this from competing with the Dodgers in a couple years. And to the point of their schedule, it doesn't help that they had to play the Dodgers at Giants that many times. They also lost the season series to the Rockies and they only went 11 and 8 against Arizona. So it's not like it's just the Dodgers and Giants. It's like if the Yankees miss the playoffs, the fact that they played so poorly against Baltimore while every other AL East team destroyed the Orioles is probably going to be the reason why if San Diego had gone 14 and five against Arizona and Colorado, they would be right neck and neck with St. Louis for the second wildcard spot now, even with all of those injuries. So yeah, yeah, the the Dodgers and Giants part doesn't help, but you know, it's across the board. Yeah. How many times do we make some version of this point that you make the playoffs by beating beating up on bad teams. And the Padres, in addition to the injuries, in addition to you know, Adam Frazier turning back into pre-breakout Adam Frazier, in, you know, in addition to uh, Fernando Tatis getting moved to the outfield and po- constantly popping his shoulder back in like Eric Robertson, the best of the best. Like this is this is a a, a crisis of their own making because they weren't able to put the, put away the teams that they were supposed to beat. And like, I don't know when it's going to be easier to make the playoffs in the national league in the next few years. Cause even as hot as the Cardinals have been, this is not a, a very competitive race for the, for the second wild card right now. 
Yeah. And, you know, the twins have suffered their misfortune in a very Midwestern way. I mean, they have just kind of quietly lost it. Covered it in cheese. Yeah. It doesn't seem like heads are really rolling or anything here. It's just a, a bad losing season. It's disappointing. But the Padres are so disappointing that it seems like they are reshuffling everything now. And I don't know how much of that is justified and, or merited or, or how much of it is just a reaction or an overreaction to a, a lousy couple months of baseball. But between firing the pitching coach and having a new player development director and the questions about Tingler and all these things that could linger and you know the confrontation between Machado and, and Tatis and I don't make much of these things it, it seems like the Machado Tatis spat has blown over already and I think these are just the natural results of a team that's losing a lot and is disappointed in themselves and obviously tensions are going to flare up and they're all very frustrated and sometimes these things express themselves and in their case it happened to express itself in a very visible way in the dugout where we could all see it but the fact that they are almost metzing in a way that you don't expect, like the Twins just kind of under the radar losing, the Mets are just always a, a tire fire from a front office and management and back of the newspaper pages perspective. The Padres, though, they're usually very quiet and anonymous and not making headlines, too, and they are making headlines that you don't want to be no. making these days. Yeah, like Jace headline, Jace Tingler, I don't believe I've lost the clubhouse, which is definitely <laughs> yeah. something that you say when you haven't lost the clubhouse. The dreaded vote of confidence that he has given himself. It's worse than the vote of confidence. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, to the Twins, they did shake things up. Like they traded Barrios and uh, yeah. traded Hap and traded Nelson Cruz. So they've just decided to, you know, I still have faith in that front office and and coaching staff. I like Rocco Baldelli's manager a lot. I would, they went, things went so south for them so early that it's almost easier to see that as a mulligan year. Well, the Padres, they look like a team that should have made the playoffs and there are, are some kind of cultural or structural problem that needs to be addressed. It would not shock me if, uh, if they made a, a managerial change this off season. Uh, but you mentioned the Mets. Um, do we want to talk about the Mets or do we want to clear out for, for Bobby for a minute or two. I don't know. Bobby, are you disappointed in the Mets season? Is that, is that a really, feeling right? you have? <laughs> Guys, I don't feel it would be an honest thing for me to participate fully in this segment because I am both mad and disappointed <laughs> in everything that has happened in the 2021 season with the Mets. I'm also weirdly confused. Like, There's been a lot of strange controversies along the way. Also, many players telling me the whole time that it was going to be fine and that Come October, I would be happy and I'd be watching the Mets coast into the playoffs. So don't just clear out for me. I'd like to just hear you guys talk about what the hell happened because I don't really know. It weirdly, it's not the end of an era for the Mets because they still have a lot of like, as long as Jacob deGrom is still there, there's still a connection. But it feels like a lot of important Mets who have defined recent Mets teams are free agents after the season. Noah Syndergaard, yeah. Michael Conforto. And that feels weird because... They made the World Series kind of ahead of schedule in 2015. They had that awesome wild card duel against the Giants a year later. And ever since, they've had very good players. They've had a very good core. And they never fulfilled those expectations. They always fell short. And now it seems like some of those players are really starting to move on. So I think it's disappointing both for this year and because with the the new ownership and all of the changes in the front office and and, and with the manager... We expected this season to be different for the Mets, and it was kind of the same. So now you're left wondering, well, what is going to change? Because they tried everything, and nothing seemed to work. Well, they didn't try everything. They didn't try fielding a team with more than one good defender. But, but okay, I, I meant more behind the scenes. They seem okay. To, yes, I, I mean think they've they've tried everything except like maybe let somebody other than Sandy Alderson make the the decisions. So I find. Like, this is a very low-grade thing to be irritated with, with all the nonsense that's gone on in the Mets front office over the past few years. But Sandy Alderson used to be viewed as, like, a visionary figure in baseball, and he's just embarrassed himself at every turn uh, in his Mets tenure. And I just really want him to get out of the way, just, if nothing else, for his own sake. Because it just, he doesn't give off the air of a guy who knows what he's doing anymore. And... I don't know what's going to change the next 
GM he brings in or next, you know, president of baseball ops that he brings in. I don't know what's going to change if what's coming down from the top of him and uh, bald Bobby Axelrod, if they're still calling the shots, what about this culture is going to trickle down to uh, to the roster? And I think like there's so much for them to feel hard done by. Like they only got half a season of, of Jacob deGrom for Francisco Lindor, like the the worst half season he's going to have as a Met is behind us. Javi Baez struggled when he first came over by trade. Like this is not a bad roster that they've constructed, and they've been unlucky in in a lot of cases. But it's sort of like the Padres, where it's a combination of of injuries, bad luck, and things just sort of snowballing because nobody knew how to arrest the slide. They they've been unlucky, but like they don't have a team, they don't have a roster construction that is built to overcome any kind of luck that doesn't go the yes, way. There are teams right. that have good defense. There are teams that have good, reliable starting pitchers that can go every five days that can at least keep you in a game. And the Mets just lost that depth, whether it was through injury or whether it was through choosing to not go out and get a bigger piece at the trade deadline, whatever. And this team for the last, you know, they've gotten a little bit better with how much they pay attention to defense and base running, but they're still one of the worst defensive teams and still one of the worst base running teams in the league. And so when that lineup production just didn't come through this year, they had quite literally nothing to fall back on other than, well, I hope that we win this game 2-1. to one. And when you don't have Jacob DeGrom out there because of injury anymore, it's very less likely that you're going to win the game 2-1. to one. It's funny. I actually praised the Mets before the season that they did seem to go out and address the depth concerns that had plagued them the past few years where one guy got hurt and all of a sudden they were ruined. Like the Joey Lucchese trade, I thought he was pretty good. Then he got hurt through only 38 innings. Uh, Taiwan Walker, I thought that signing was really shrewd and he made the all-star team and has been terrible in the second half. So his ERA is now above 4.5. So I think in practice, those ideas made sense, but they just didn't actually work out. Uh, and the next team I want to bring up, the last one I have in the I'm not mad, I'm disappointed uh, category kind of fits that same bill. It's sometimes like they actually went out and signed more than four starting pitchers, which they hadn't in the past, and then it didn't end up mattering because they just got hurt. Yeah, I, I'm definitely disappointed in the Mets. I mean, you mentioned that they didn't have the depth to survive not hitting, but I'm definitely disappointed that they didn't hit and kind of confused about that. I haven't tweeted about it the way that Steve Cohen did, but I was equally confused by the fact that that lineup just didn't pan out the way that I thought it would. And I think I'm the OPS just isn't there, Ben. It's just not there. The OPS (laughs) numbers don't lie. (laughs) He was not wrong. Whether he should have tweeted it is a different question, but he was not wrong. And I'm disappointed in the first Francisco Lindor season in New York. I was really looking forward to him kind of taking over this town. And that just didn't happen. I said he was going to be David Wright. Like, yes, yeah. that yeah. was what I expected. And, and maybe we'll he always still have will. that Sunday night baseball game against the Yankees. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, people will probably remember the thumbs down stuff more than anything else other than that game this year. And that's a bummer. I hope that that won't be his legacy with the Mets and that he will turn it around. He certainly has plenty of time to, but that was disappointing. So there are a lot of really fun players on that team who I was looking forward to seeing healthy. And yeah, I agree that the roster construction has never been that strong and maybe it's not so surprising that they didn't gel well, but I thought they had enough to win with their component parts not quite fitting together, especially in what has turned out to be as weak a division as everyone expected it to be. This is at least partially a failure in expectation management, I think, because part of the problem is, you know, the richest owner in baseball comes in and promises big things and pays for kind of like a B plus roster. You know, they get James, they get McCann instead of Rio Muto. They, you know, get good players. That one hurts. In a couple places. McCann is having a horrible season. Yeah, it's I mean. I was never a big fan of his to begin with, but this is worse than I expected him to be. Uh, but that's what happens when you shop on like the second shelf in the free agent uh, in the free agent shop is you get burned in in cases like this. Sometimes you get a lot less production for a little less money. Um, and you know if you're going to operate like the early 2000s Yankees, then you got to spend like it. And so you know, is this? It, it, this is a team that is just a couple dominoes away from being right in the uh, the hump for the NL East title with the Braves. And is that domino 
you know, what does this team look like if they sign Marcus Semyon or or George Springer or any number of other guys who are just out there um, and could have been had for for reasonable contracts? And I think that's going to be one of the lingering what ifs for me for this Mets season. Well, speaking of the owner and all of his money and free agent signings, what do you do this coming offseason with, well, specifically with Conforto and Syndergaard, guys that you can offer the qualifying offer, but you're not sure that they're going to take it? And you probably don't want to offer like big contracts because there's no. health questions around Syndergaard and Conforto just had the worst year of his career, even though he's turned it around a bit in the second half. And then it's not really like this year's free agent market is teaming with guys who the Mets need. So I guess other than Chris Bryant, if you want to completely move on at third, but they didn't want to do yeah. that at the trade deadline. So what do you what do you do with those two guys? I think they can afford to be patient and you know see see who's left out there after the lockout. Well, that's it. I didn't even think about that. So, all right, let's let's start talking about a different team, please. And thank you. The other team I have on my list is the Angels. I thought the Angels were going to contend for a playoff spot this year. Maybe I'm Lucy, or maybe I'm Charlie Brown going for the football, and I don't know. Artie Moreno is Lucy in this situation, but the Angels had a roster that looked strong both uh, at the top and I thought they made some depth upgrades which I've now thought for like three consecutive seasons and they have all failed I want to read you a list of every Angels pitcher who threw at least 100 innings this year ready Shohei Otani end of list uh, just the fact that year after year after year they cannot get any pitchers now is I think the most disappointing aspect because even like Dylan Bundy was good in the shortened season and then he had an ERA over six this year and I don't know what it's going to take for the Angels to have a competent pitching staff maybe it's drafting only pitchers as they did uh, in this year's draft <laughs> we'll find but- out yeah <laughs> Yeah, but even they'll take a couple seasons to matriculate to the majors, and it's just such a disappointment to not see Trout and Otani in the playoffs. It's a disappointment to not see Trout at all since mid-May with the calf strain that uh, that's never going to end. And the fact that, like, I know Vlad is charging and Salvador Perez is charging, but I think Otani would still be my vote for MVP pretty clearly. So that would be the third time in the last few, uh, the last half dozen seasons that an angel won the MVP while the team didn't make the playoffs. And I'm not saying like MVP needs to be tied to the playoffs at all. I'm just saying that it would be nice to see those guys performing in October. Ben, why doesn't Otani want it bad enough for <laughs> the angels to make the playoffs? Yeah, he, he should have pitched more. Probably he should have played the field a little more than he did. I'm disappointed. No, I, I it's a weird one because obviously Otani has been the opposite of disappointing. He has made my dreams come true, but that makes the Angels more disappointing in a sense because A, like it was bad enough when you had one of the best players in baseball and you still couldn't make the playoffs. This year, they had two, and one of them wasn't present for almost the entire year, obviously, but they entered the year with those guys and with Rendon, who, you know, at the beginning of the year, I would have said was also one of the best players in baseball. So 58 games played so far this year, 712 OPS from Anthony Rendon. Yeah, he was never really healthy. And Trout is extremely disappointing, the fact that he was off to the best start of his career and the fact that he strained his calf and I will just never trust an injury diagnosis again or a a prognosis or a timetable. I guess I should have learned my lesson from all the Mets injuries over the years, but I did not expect to see a calf strain suffered in what was it mid-May on a play when he was barely running, take him out for the entire season. I still don't exactly understand how that happened, but that has been very disappointing. And it would have been a nice capper just for the season that Otani had if he got to shine in the playoff stage as opposed to just the all-star game stage or my personal stage watching the Angels every night because Otani is playing. But yeah, I, they're, you know, at this point, I expect them to be here because they have been 500 ish or 500 or below for years and years and years, even with Trout and his heroic. So I'm not surprised, but I'm still slightly disappointed. You know, all those years ago, I laughed at those anonymous scouts comparing Byron Buxton to Mike Trout. And sure <laughs> enough, they're very similar players now, just yeah. not in the way that we had all anticipated. It's, 
disappointing both from a team perspective, which is the premise of this segment, but also from an individual perspective. Back when Trout got hurt in May, I wrote a piece uh, headlined, Mike Trout's mounting injuries could cost him baseball history. And at this point, he's lost something like a third of all possible games over the last half decade. That's cost him almost 100 home runs at this point. I, I know I've talked before about Trout's chances to catch you know Aaron and Bonds at the top of the list and now it doesn't look likely because of all his injuries the same goes for uh, most career war where he's now well below the top of the list although he had been like the best through age 20 the best through age 21 the best through age 22 he's no longer in the top four of best through age 29 he's behind Cobb Hornsby Mantle and A-Rod and like 10 war behind Cobb so I think the fact that he's lost so many games and that Injuries seem to beget more injuries, make me really concerned about his counting stats, which are a part of baseball legacy for those who didn't get to enjoy watching Trout in his prime for people decades from now. That's part of what makes players last in in the consciousness. There was a piece just today uh, at Fangraphs that used Zips, uh, the projection system, to forecast players' probabilities of reaching 3,000 hits. Have you had a chance to read this yet? If not, I'm going to quiz you. Go ahead. Okay, so this, yeah, this goes from like, you know, Miguel Cabrera has a 99% chance to reach 3,000 hits all the way down to like Rafael Devers has a 1% chance. What percent chance do you think Mike Trout has to reach 3,000 hits now, according to Zips? 20. Uh, now I'm going to go a little higher, like high 30s, like 38 Okay, so this is like the Chen Ming Wang question from last week. The answer is now 5%. 5 5%. He is now below 50% even to reach 2,500 hits. So back when we were saying like Mike Trout could be the greatest baseball player of all time, and he still might be hits, of course, aren't at everything, but the 3,000 hit club Barry is Bonds pretty didn't cool. Barry Bonds didn't have 3,000 hits. Yeah, yeah Trout walks too much like Pretty cool. And Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. You know, Ruth and Bonds <laughs> didn't get 3,000 hits, but... I understand that, and I was going to make the the Bonds point, but Trout is not missing out on 3,000 hits because he's getting intentionally walked 120 times a year. He is now you know, projected to fall short of that because he's missing over 100 games with a calf injury. And I think that disappointment on an individual level almost eclipses the disappointment on a team level from the Angels uh, from you know this historical legacy standpoint. Yeah, Guys, I realize this can't. is not the point, but... Does Rafael Devers really only have a 1% chance to get to 3,000? I was surprised by that as well. He's only at 583 hits. That's not that many. He could, I don't know, he could play until he's 45. What do we know about modern medicine? Not as much as we used to. He had a 200-hit season at age 22. I'm calling BS on Of all of the guys I would have said have a 1%, like of all the guys I would have put as an example as the absolute lowest, I would have put like... Kevin Pillar has a 0.00%, whatever. Don't say that. 3,000 hits is hard. There are only, what, 20-some guys in the entire like history of the sport to reach that, and hits are becoming less common now. I think 3,000 hits are less likely than you seem yeah, to think. This season hurt Nick Madrigal's chances, too. <laughs> after he declared he was going to do it. Yes, it did. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's move away from the not mad just disappointed segment and uh give Zach some space because big news Shane Boz up in the majors uh you really don't have a guy for podcast bit purposes the way Ben and I do is Shane Boz your guy now I guess he has to be just for the bit because it's now come up on two pods and as we're talking about what to go over on this podcast who cares about the, the card-stealing fracas, the most important news out of Blue Jays' raise this week was that Shane Boz made his Major League debut, held a powerful Blue Jays lineup to two runs in five innings. He had five strikeouts and no walks. Fairly promising debut, and I think he is going to make a playoff start. I called this a couple weeks ago, and the, nothing he's done since then has made me less confident in that. More importantly, I discovered his nickname of Wizard of Boz, which is excellent, and I'm really excited to hear that on TBS this October. <laughs> nice bit of historical trivia. The the Rays opened up a 40-man spot for him to call him up by putting Chris Archer on the 60-day list. <laughs> oh, how appropriate. Poor Pirates. Mike, you've got a you've got to like the Wizard of Boz nickname. That's great. That's all right. It's it's a little involved. I don't know. I tried to tried to get uh um 
save a horse to stick as a nickname for Steven Ridings and got yelled at on the internet. So <laughs> maybe if nothing else, it's, it's just not involved enough. Um, all right, let's look ahead to this weekend. We don't have that many of these left, only two, but here is the unnamed weekend preview segment. Zach, who do you got? It's a weird weekend. Very few of the contenders are actually playing each other. So I think the obvious is Yankees Red Sox who are competing for the two uh, AL wildcard spots along with Toronto at this point. Uh, The Red Sox, I'd be pretty surprised if they didn't make it because after three against the Yankees, they play the Orioles and Nationals. And that is a rather comfortable way to cruise to the end of the season. But uh, Yankees Red Sox is always fun, especially when playoff spots are on the line. The prize matchup in this series comes Friday night, Garrett Cole versus Nathan Eovaldi, who are right now the top two pitchers in the American League by Fangraphs version of War. I think Robbie Ray is definitely up there if you look at other versions of War uh, for the Cy Young uh, consideration. But Cole versus Eovaldi with a playoff spot on the line, I can't really think of another game I'd rather watch. That's a, a bit of an affront to Mr. Chalk. Um, yeah. then do you have any ideas left? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't compete with that, really. I, I guess I'll go with Astros A's just because I just generally enjoy watching these two teams, I, I think, for the most part. And there are some playoff implications here, not nearly the same as Yankees-Red Sox, but this race is technically still alive, right? The clinching hasn't happened yet. The A's are in the wild card race as well, although they've uh, fallen a bit behind. So, yeah, I, I guess that's my runner up here. All right. I'm going to go for Braves Padres for a couple reasons. One, uh, as we record, we're recording a day early. So maybe this will change by the time you get to this. But uh, ESPN is listing all the the scheduled starters for this weekend. The Padres starters this weekend, according to that list, are Undecided, Undecided, and Joe Musgrove. And that, uh, friends, is what we like to call a microcosm. Um, The other thing, there's two other reasons. One, uh, as we record, the Padres are six games out of the wild card. They have a 0.3% chance of making the playoffs, according to fan graphs. They are only... Uh, theoretically hanging on and they need to basically sweep this weekend in order to have any chance of, of keeping those very, very slim hopes of making the playoffs alive. The other thing is speaking of slim playoff hopes, one of the two division races that's still in the balance is the NL East and uh, the Phillies are playing the pirates. They need, they technically control their own destiny because they're three games back and have three games remaining against Atlanta, but practically they need help from the Padres in order to, to close ground. So this is going to be, I think the, the series that has the greatest impact on the National League playoff picture because it, it can affect a couple different races. Can you imagine how bad things would be in San Diego if that Joe Musgrave trade didn't basically work out so that he was a number two starter, which was like kind of more than they were expecting when they traded for him and he was going to be like their three or four guy? He's been amazing this year. Yeah. Can you imagine how dark they would be like 20 games under 500 without him pitching well? Undecided, undecided in Musgrove. That's entering spawn insane and pray for rain territory but these games are in san diego so i'm not sure how much rain they can pray for well at this point they're probably familiar with their prayers going unanswered <laughs> i'd rather have undecided than jake arietta right that's an improvement yes no matter what they decide it could be as bad <laughs> redefining uh the concept of replacement level yep That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Kevin Kiermaier, Ryan Barucki, and Undecided for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.